Greetings, and thank you for tuning into this podcast episode focused on migraine management titled Your Questions About Migraine Answered. Our learning objectives for this podcast are discuss the triage and workup of patients with headache, included validated tools and guidelines that aid in diagnosing suspected migraine, identify patients who are candidates for preventive migraine therapy, and individualize migraine care plans to ensure that each patient's unique needs are addressed, ultimately improving symptoms and quality of life. Today, we will be joined by Dr. Dawn Buse, clinical professor in the Department of Neurology at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, a licensed psychologist, and fellow of the American Headache Society. Uh, welcome, Dr. Buse. Thank you, Sue. I'm happy to be here today. Dr. Buse will be addressing questions about migraine diagnosis and treatment that were recently posed by PrimeMed learners during our live sessions. And now let's get started. Um, the first question is, should a patient under 50 years with a first single episode of migraine-like headache have an MRI? No. In fact, a MRI or imaging is not necessary for a patient under 50 years with a first single episode of migraine-like headache. The American Headache Society had the Choosing Wisely campaign that they published in 2013 based on most available recent up-to-date evidence. And they had one statement that specifically said, don't perform neuroimaging studies in patients with stable headaches who meet criteria for migraine. Of course, there are times when we want to think about imaging and looking for secondary headaches, red flags, and concerning signs. There's a really helpful mnemonic called SNOOP, S-N-O-O-P, which reminds us some of those red flags for secondary headache, including systemic symptoms, signs and disease, neurologic symptoms or sign, headache onset sudden or onset later after the age of 40 years, and basically any change in headache pattern. So we want to look for changes or differences, worst headache ever, thunderclap headache that comes on fast, or new headache in someone over the age of 40 who had not had headache before. And there are additional screening items also that can be found in the expanded SNOOP 10. How do you differentiate between cluster headache and migraine? There are various differences between cluster headache and migraine attacks, including how long the headaches last, what the associated symptoms are, how often they occur, what part of the head and body they affect, as well as things like even seasonal symptoms and triggers. One of the defining differences between cluster and migraine attacks is their duration. Cluster headaches are typically quite short, from only a few minutes to maybe as long as 90 minutes, whereas a migraine attack has multiple phases and lasts much longer, often 4 to 72 hours if untreated, often the entire day or even the next day if left untreated. So while it would be very uncommon to have more than one unique migraine attack in a day, cluster gets its name from the fact that they occur in clusters, and a patient may experience many, many cluster headaches in one day or in one week. They often occur maybe even seasonally, and they come together for some time, and then they may remit or be quiescent for some time. With cluster headaches, there are typically long pain-free periods between the, the clusters. Um, the pain location can vary. Migraine may be unilateral, doesn't have to be, um, whereas cluster is pretty located around the eye, and patients will point to or even kind of really, really put pressure on or even kind of hit themselves above the eye, super orbitally around the eye on the back or, or, or front of the head um, and is typically unilateral around the temple, around the eye. 
Um, with a migraine attack, a patient's going to want to rest, sleep, be in a dark, quiet room. Whereas during a cluster headache, people might become quite agitated. They might pace. They are going to look restless. And as I mentioned, they even may do things that look quite painful, like hitting their own forehead or, or above the eye to try and distract themselves from the pain. Um, cluster headaches usually have eye redness, tearing. They can have nasal congestion on the side of the face where the headache is located, where migraine attacks have the hallmark symptoms of photo and phonophobia, sensory delight and sound, nausea with or without vomiting, and other symptoms such as cognitive impairment and cutaneous allodynia. Unfortunately for some people, both of these headache types may occur in the same person, but again, they present quite differently and they're treated differently. That's very interesting. I know a lot of us were taught that migraine is usually unilateral, but that's not necessarily true. It's not necessarily true. It is one of the criteria for diagnosing migraine, but it's not necessary. Well, good to know. Um, the next question asked by several of our learners was, how do you decide who should receive preventive migraine therapy? In 2021, so quite recently, the American Headache Society published an updated consensus statement on the management of migraine. And this statement offers a very helpful algorithm for considering when to consider and when to offer preventive therapy using a combination of the number of monthly headache days and the degree of associated migraine-related disability. So there's a nice table in this consensus statement, which is available free and pretty easy to access online, which shows with four or more headache days per month and any degree of disability, including none, that prevention should be considered. And with three or more headache days per month with severe disability, four or more with some disability, and six or more with no disability, they step it up and say prevention should be offered. Of course, ultimately, this decision always occurs between the healthcare professional and his or her patient, but this algorithm is really helpful in making that decision. So just to be clear, um, you said any, dis any degree of disability includes no degree of disability. That's right, Sue. So if someone is having one migraine day or headache day per week on average, four per month on average, that's a time to consider preventive therapy despite degree of disability. Although honestly, as a headache clinician, um, I'd be surprised if someone's having migraine with no disability. That would be hard to imagine what that would be like unless they were just very quickly and effectively treated. Um, but you're right, you're right. That, those are what the guidelines say. How long should we try a preventive treatment before switching to another agent? This is a great question and a question that I hear a lot. Ultimately, it's a question that's determined between a healthcare professional and his or her patient. But the American Headache Society does give some guidelines in their 2021 consensus statement that are helpful. Generally, they say at least give prevention three months of use before deciding to make decisions. For the older traditional oral preventives, that's going to be you know, 90 days of daily use. Um, for a new CGRP-targeted monoclonal antibody, if it's a monthly injectable, that's going to be three doses. If it's a quarterly, that's going to be one dose. Um, ideally, they say go ahead and give the CGRP-targeted monoclonal antibodies six months after the start of quarterly treatments to really assess, because that would have been two cycles, uh, how the patient's responding. And again, um, while ideally this is a decision made between healthcare professional and patient, there may be guidelines um, or steps required by payers about how long and how many cycles of a treatment need to be tried before moving on to a new treatment. 
In addition, it's always good to remember that preventive modalities can be combined with uh, non-pharmacologic and neurostimulation options sometimes for even greater benefit. A uh, slightly related question. How many times should a patient try an acute migraine medication before switching to something else? That's also a great question that we hear a lot. And while there are not hard and fast rules, because it tends to vary by agent, there are some general guidelines we can use. First off, let's talk about switching. So switching can be within class. So say triptan to triptan. It can be adding. It could be adding like an NSAID to a triptan or adding a neurostimulation to a triptan. It can also be switching between classes, for example. Um, so there's a lot of options. So you might go ahead and try a medication for at least three headache attacks or migraine attacks. Um, and you're gonna look at two things, of course, we're looking at efficacy, but also tolerability. And in fact, while efficacy may be higher, if the tolerability is not working, a lot of patients will not want to continue. So sometimes we're making changes based on tolerability as well as efficacy decisions. So we're going to think about how we switch, probably starting within classes. And data show that switching from one trip 10 to another can have benefits for someone in the second trip 10, even if they did not respond to the first. But you may move between classes, or you may add or augment either other pharmacologics or non-pharmacologic modalities. And that leads us naturally into, into the following question, which um, is, is great because there's several exciting, relatively new medications on the market to, to treat migraine. Um, so when would you use an oral CGRP blocker for acute migraine, for acute treatment of migraine? Sue, that's a great question, and one we're hearing a lot these days. It's really exciting to have this new, relatively new class of acute medications available. And we have two medications in the GPANT acute treatment, including Remigipant and Ubrojipant. And as well, Remigipant can also be used preventively. But let's talk about them acutely for now. Ultimately, the decision when to start a GPANT is between a healthcare professional and the patient. But of course, there may be limitations and steps required by payers in order to get coverage of that payment. And in order to facilitate this process, the American Headache Society in 2021, in their consensus statement, put out a table with criteria to consider for when to initiating acute treatments with GPANs, DITANs, or neuromodulatory devices. And among uh, various criteria, they recommended the patient must be at least 18 years of age because that's for whom the FDA has approved these medications. Um, but they also mentioned kind of narrowing in on people with contraindications to or inability to tolerate triptans. Um, a great example of that, of course, is going to be cardiovascular history or risk or inadequate response to two or more oral triptans. So the AHS generally recommends focusing on those folks who either didn't get the response or couldn't tolerate the triptans or have that contraindication. Remigipant and Ubrojipant are excellent choices when it comes to people with cardiovascular history because they do not constrict blood vessels. So they are a, a better option than the triptans for someone with a cardiovascular history. Ultimately, of course, this is a decision between the patient, the provider, and what needs to be done in order to ensure that the payer will support the prescription. And in addition to acute uh, GPANs, there are also preventive ones. Um, if a patient is going on a GPAN as preventive therapy, can they also take a triptan for acute migraine treatment? That's a great question, Sue. 
As you know, we have two GPANs, which are FDA approved for preventive therapy of migraine. And people often ask if you can take a triptan along with a GPAN for prevention. The answer is yes. In a phase one clinical trial, concomitant use of remigipan with sub-Q sumatriptan was found to be safe and well tolerated, and the pharmacokinetics of both treatments were not affected when, in, when administered to individuals with migraine. So we've got remigipan and we've got atojapan in the preventive therapy category, and uh, they can both be used with triptans as acute treatment. Oh, no, that's, that's wonderful to know. Going back to triptans for a second. Can triptans be used in a patient taking a combined oral contraceptive? Yes, triptans can be used with patients taking a combined oral contraceptive. I'm guessing the person who asked this question might have been thinking about the limitations for combined hormonal contraceptives for patients with migraine and with aura in general, which comes from a 2016 U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, medical eligibility criteria for use of contraceptives in various medical conditions. So in the case of migraine with aura, we do want to be cautious with um, women using combined hormonal contraceptives regardless of the patient's age. Um, but this does not relate to triptans in general with taking a combined oral contraceptive in the case, especially of migraine without aura. If that person's taking a combined oral contraceptive and has migraine with aura, that's something to talk about. Well, that's a very good clarification. Thank you. Um, do you have any advice on how to manage patients who experience debilitating migraine attacks every month during their menstrual period, but not the rest of the month? This is such a great question. There's a fair number of women with migraine who experience migraine attacks quite reliably with their menstrual cycle, usually starting from about one or two days before the onset of bleeding to about three days into the cycle. All of the acute and preventive pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic therapies that are approved for migraine management can be utilized for menstrual migraine. It's also really important to think about encouraging a healthy lifestyle. If the woman is having this week of vulnerability every month and she knows this is coming, it's gonna be really especially important to get enough sleep, manage stress, stay hydrated, eat healthy and exercise during that week in order to raise the migraine attack threshold. When we think about acute therapies, all of the acute therapies are available for use. Frobotriptan has a longer half-life, so it can be a good choice for someone with menstrual migraine. And 1GPAN, Remigipan, has been approved for both acute and preventive use and may be able to use in a uh, short-term prophylactic approach around the time of the cycle. In addition, some people will use uh, various hormonal therapies, exogenous estrogens um, and contraception to try and uh, level out that, that dramatic rise that happens at, at ovulation, the dramatic fall that happens before, uh, before menstruation of estrogen and try and also manage the migraine that way. And also if a woman is using oral contraceptive, she might wanna consider an extended dose, one of the dosings that are 90 days instead of 30. And that way she has four vulnerable periods a year instead of 12. So it's good to know that there are so many options that we can help get around this, this issue. Um, the final question for this session is, um, what migraine treatment do you recommend for children or adolescents? This is such an important question and topic. I'm glad someone asked it. The American Academy of Neurology's 2019 practice guideline update, which is endorsed by the American Academy of Pediatrics, regarding acute and preventive migraine treatment in children and adolescents, recommends the use of acetaminophen, ibuprofen, sumatriptan naproxen tablets, the combined version, or zomatriptan nasal spray. 
Topiramate is also approved for preventive therapy. However, some of these studies did not find the same kind of efficacy that we see in adults with these therapies. And so, in fact, there's really good evidence for behavioral approaches, including cognitive behavioral therapy, biofeedback, and relaxation therapy in children and adolescents, both for migraine attack prevention and management. The treatment of migraine in children really involves multiple components, including not only the patient, but the family, as everyone listening will know. Children really need to focus on that healthy lifestyle, especially adolescents need to think about getting enough sleep, about thinking about what kinds of exercise, um, healthy meals, staying hydrated, and it may be something as simple as writing a doctor's note that they need to take some food with them in the morning and, and have a, a mid-morning snack at, at school that has some protein and has some complex carbohydrates to get them through, keep their blood, sh blood sugar a little bit more steady. Those things are all really important in children and adolescents, and often both the healthcare professional as well as the parent might be involved in thinking about how to modify the factors at school and at home to really set the patient up for success. That's all the time we have for today. Dr. Buse, thank you for taking the time to answer some common questions that our learners have asked. Thank you, Sue, and thank you to our learners for sharing these really excellent questions. These were important and interesting to talk about, so I appreciate the follow-up. To obtain your CME credit, please visit primed.com and complete a short post-assessment. If you listened to this podcast on another platform, please refer to the episode description where there is a direct link to the activity page on primed.com for claiming CME credit.